Just a quick reminder that I do now have a second podcast called Track Nerds, where I have guests on to discuss travel, exercise, and movies and TV. Check it out. Okay, enjoy the show. Kind of like last week, this movie covers a very long period of time, from basically 1908 to 1967, actually. But we put it at about 1950 when fitting it in our timeline here, because that is when the kind of present plot within the movie does take place. But it's going to cover a lot of ground here as we kind of backtrack. It almost covers the the entire time span of this season so far because it starts off oh, in, true. <laughs> what, like 1907 or 1908. Oh, yeah, good call. You're right. So basically this takes place, let's say you start with Battleship Potemkin. This basically starts just three years after Battleship Potemkin took place and right. will actually end after the timeline of the last episode we end up doing this year. So, yeah, you're right. It, it does cover this entire season. But, again, we're putting yeah. it in 1950. Because that is kind of when the story we're presented with does begin. And we've talked about a lot of this stuff already in previous episodes. But it is kind of neat to get it from this different perspective. Because we'll, we'll touch into you know, things that we were looking at during the Sand Pebbles, during It Man, uh, lots of World War II stuff. So all of that kind of happens within the context of this story. Which, if you didn't already know, refers to the last emperor of China, who was deposed in, what, 1912 after taking the throne as like a two or three-year-old boy in 1908. Yeah. So let's start in our correct spot in our timeline here. So what we see in 1950 is a group of prisoners are taken into, not necessarily taken, they're already in custody, but they're transferred to a new prison, and we're kind of told that these are prisoners of war and they they kind of just throw you into the story and you don't necessarily know exactly what's going on but basically this is the newly empowered people's republic of china dealing with people they thought were against the chinese during the war specifically chinese people who were against the chinese during the war accused of helping and aiding the japanese against their own people and among them is the former emperor who at this time would be, what, 40 years old off the top of my head? Yeah, about 40 years old or so, in his early yeah. 40s. And we kind of jump back and forth between him dealing with life in this prison complex and what's going to happen to him there. Is he going to be killed, which is definitely something he's worried about. And then flashing back to when he becomes emperor as a small boy. And we kind of just constantly go back and forth between these two timelines that both are advancing. His time in prison in the 50s goes basically throughout the entire decade of the 50s. And we see him from a basically a not much more than a toddler all the way through then into his 20s and 30s until he kind of then meets the beginning where he's in prison. So we're covering his whole life kind of told out of order with two separate timelines kind of both working forward there. So, but it is it, the, the movie goes back and forth. So I'm not sure if I just want to give the narrative of his life or if I want to kind of tell you how the movie portrays it by going back and forth and it's and it's really really complicated when you think about all the different parties that were at play in china i would almost think that chronologically is probably the easiest way to explain this because trying to go back and forth <sighs> yeah that's probably fair even watching the movie it does get a little bit confusing discombobulating yeah yeah because this dude's the dude's life is like it's so interesting it like, really so is much stuff so yeah. much stuff happened to this guy. He has a crazy long Wikipedia page. You, you think of how many different hats a person can wear in their life. And going from a god emperor to 
a poor gardener. Yeah. <laughs> and with, you know, 1920s Playboy in between, like, that's just fascinating to to break it down like that. I mean, it's it, it almost doesn't, it's like it. It's almost unbelievable. That's not real life. Yeah, it's almost unbelievable. And so let's let's actually let's give a super fast overview and then kind of break it down into more detail. So yes, this kid goes from literally the emperor of China and what ends up with him at the end of his life being in kind of trouble and on outs with the People's Republic of China is the accusations that he helped the Japanese during the war and and a lot of a lot of the conflict within the movie is him denying these allegations and or trying to justify his actions. And so where this ties back into some of the movies we've already watched is so basically after he was deposed because, you know, there was, again, revolution in China, the monarchy, the emperor is overthrown. But then there's a lot of battles between all the various factions, some of which we saw in the Sand Pebbles. And then we talked about during Ip Man, the Japanese invaded and took over Manchuria. What we didn't mention when we talked about Ip Man was that the Japanese basically recruited our emperor here to be now the emperor of, uh, what do they call it, Manchuko? Basically this puppet state. So it's the Japanese setting up a Japanese-controlled Chinese country that they can say is Chinese because they have the actual former emperor as the de facto leader, but he's just a puppet and the Japanese are actually in charge, and they just use this as a staging ground for their continued attacks against China. And then so then later, after World War II, when he's captured and ends up in the hands of the communist Chinese, they're basically saying, you were an enemy of the people, you were aiding and abetting the Japanese. So that's the brief overview I sent you a text making sure you watch the quote-unquote shorter version of this film because I ended up yeah, watching I like, did. okay, oh my god! I'm curious to see, because you, you said it's like th- over three and a half hours. The one I watched was, yes. Yeah, so I'll be curious to see where they put in another 45 minutes of stuff. I see, and so I've, I had seen this movie before, but, and I'm pretty, cause I, because I enjoyed it so much more the first time I watched it, I'm guessing I watched the shorter version because I just kind of <laughs> felt like this this version just wouldn't end and I was yeah. getting more, uh, more bored. Whereas but the first time I watched it, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't. I couldn't even tell you where they added it other than just little bits throughout. I don't think it was huge scenes that were added as much as just everything was extended. Yeah. And I also read, though, too, that... It wasn't extended. It wasn't like the version I watched was the director's cut. It was really just as simple as when they wanted to put it on network TV, they thought that its theatrical length was was too long for one night on TV, but too short to split over two nights on TV. So they did a longer two-night TV event cut. And that's what I ended up watching Mm. basically accidentally. (laughs) So I had recorded it off of yeah, tv where, where did you watch it yeah so yeah this might this version might not even be available I, I recorded it off of tv onto vhs like 15 years ago and just kind of when i went to watch it to save the three buck rental on amazon i was like i'm pretty sure i got this on vhs somewhere so i <laughs> i dug it up and threw it in not knowing the runtime of what i had just put in oh yeah no i mean obviously <laughs> if you didn't know you didn't know but i would have i would have just spent the three dollars. Oh, yeah, I was uh, I was pot committed <laughs> at that point, and uh, I did, and I didn't know. Like I had the timer running. I was like, "Why is this movie not over yet?" <laughs> that said, it's a really good movie. Just watch the actual version. Watch you're it supposed on to Amazon. Watch. Yeah, watch it on Amazon. You can actually watch. It, I think it's a there's a 
if you sign up for like a free trial of i think it's cinemax oh one on of the Amazon, channels that's free yeah you, you can get a seven day free trial well it's not free after seven days but correct if you sign up for the for the free trial you can watch it for free yeah i think i've exhausted all of those because I, I take advantage of those every time they come up but then i've used them and now i you know can't use it again yeah so yeah i watched it for free but i had to suffer through it <laughs> anyway <laughs> let's uh just because we kind of started talking about the movie itself let's do talk about it as a movie and then we'll come back to to visit the the history stuff here so at the well the oscars are always for the at the following year so it's the 1988 awards ceremony for the best movies in 1987 and last emperor swept it was nine for nine in the categories it was nominated for including best picture and this yeah. was a really good year for movies. I would say the Best Picture nominees, Broadcast News, was probably my favorite. But, I mean, this is a year that had The Untouchables, Good Morning Vietnam, Moonstruck, Fatal Attraction, Empire of the Sun. And like, and that's not even all the Best Picture nominees, which included, like, Hope and Glory. And even something like the Best Foreign Film that year was Babette's Feast, which is really good, too. So it was, it was a solid year for movies. And... Last Emperor went nine for nine. Now it didn't have any acting nominations, though. So it's basically best picture, best director, and then writing and all the technical well, stuff. Although the uh, best actor and supporting actor that year are both pretty iconic: Michael Douglas in Wall Street and Sean Connery in The Untouchables. Yes, yes. I mean, those are some pretty heavy hitters as I, far I, as uh, characters are concerned. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying this movie should have won acting awards. I'm just saying typically a movie right. that wins this picture right. does get at least some acting nominations. Oh, and, okay. And its yeah, lack yeah. of nominations are case, basically what enabled it to then sweep and not have any losses. It won, went nine for nine in the categories it was up for. And directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, who I wasn't really familiar with. And the only other movie of his that I had heard of was Last Tango in Paris, which was pretty controversial at the time when it came out for reasons we don't need to go into here because i've never even actually seen it and it won't show up on this list but <laughs> okay so back to the life of our emperor here so we should let's go ahead and call him by his his name here uh puyi is the name that he most commonly seems to to go by and again a lot of this we see in the movie which is kind of cool so he was declared the next emperor by the previous empress or empress dowager who had a reign very similar to the empress we saw in detective d in the mystery of the phantom flame or whatever that movie was called and where she kind of was kind of just took charge so okay this lady was basically just kind of married to one of the emperors one of his concubines and then basically just by sheer force of will ends up in charge is it because he didn't have any kids or I guess how did I? I didn't. Yeah, I didn't it's kind of tricky too. No, it's, specifically, but how did how did how did they choose Puyi? Because it seems like he was he, he was kind of a normal kid. Oh, uh, so he he was a distant relative. He was from a noble okay. family. He was a distant relative of the previous emperor who had actually who died in 1908. So that's why he gets named. So she's in charge, and then when the technical emperor dies in 1908, she chooses another relative that's you know probably tied to both of them basically another one of his relatives a distant cousin kind of thing who was from a noble house to be his successor and then she died oh shoot it's actually just like the next day holy cow i just noticed noticed that so the emperor died on on november 14th 1908 
mm-hmm. then the Empress Dowager died the following day. And we kind of see that scene in the movie where the little boy goes before this old empress. And they kind of don't really yeah. explain in the movie what's exactly is happening there. So she was the yeah. de facto power in China at the time. Even though she wasn't technically the emperor, she had ruled for decades and names this peripheral family member as the as her successor and then dies. And then he's brought to the Forbidden City, again, as we see all this in the movie. And it's a weird form of brainwashing when you see how these young monarchs are dealt with, where he is told from the time he's this little boy that he was, you know, chosen by God to rule the Chinese. Oh, what are the terms they use? They kind of they say like you know he'll rule for ten thousand years, and there's there's a couple different terms they use. Uh, oh, he's the son of heaven. They call him the son of son heaven, of heaven. And, he's, yeah. and he's the lord of ten thousand years. And he grows up in the Forbidden City, which again is worth mentioning is just kind of this imperial palace area in China that covers over 180 acres, and it's just it's like, almost like a city that's just a palace and you've seen it you know a million places you know on on tv and and the internet this movie was the first non-chinese movie to be allowed to film there yes yes and so yeah it was the seat of imperial power in china for you know nearly 500 years built in the early 1400s and this movie was actually filmed there which is really neat so yeah and then he's surrounded by it's kind of interesting there's there's a few women that are kind of like I think they're the previous emperor's wives, yeah. and so they still have some position there, but they're kind of like his de facto moms, because he wasn't allowed to bring his mom into the Forbidden City with him. The only connection to his old life was uh, the wet nurse that they bring in. Or actually, no, I say that. She was brought in and then became his kind of sole family connection. I don't think right. she had known him, uh, known her previously. And then, so, but then the bulk of the population of the Forbidden City is the eunuchs. Which, mm-hmm. again, we've mentioned when we talked about China before, but I wanted to do a little more research on that. Basically, this is just a tradition in Imperial China was to kind of have it populated by, and this, this, the staff of the emperor is these eunuchs, basically to ensure the purity of the line. The moment you introduce male servants who are not castrated, who's to say they don't actually impregnate the empress? So the only way to be 100% sure is to make sure that anybody else in the Forbidden City is castrated. It was a practice that continued up through the 20th century when when this boy was surrounded by uh, his army of eunuchs. They were just his servants in all different capacities, for everything from his teachers to his cooks to everybody was, uh, was a eunuch. And so what I wanted to research here, and I, I did find a pretty good article about it, not even on Wikipedia, and... <laughs> Oh, digging deep. Yeah, right? My biggest question was, where did these guys come from? So it was a lot of different things. So basically, because they were so important to the emperor and just, you know, the country in general, in turn, some people would basically see it as an honor. So like, oh, yeah, we're going to make sure our boys become eunuchs and the kind of the oh, parents. So they would, they would actually like seek out the position yeah so there's there's all different ways so that that was one path is some might be kind of like pushed by their family to go you know take this great honor and you know become one of the eunuchs in in the palace because you were important then others it might have been more of like a way to get out of poverty so you might not become a eunuch until you're an adult because you're like well everything else sucks i might as well become a eunuch and then i can try to find a better life through service in the palace in you know, that kind of ties into free choice, and then, but then for others, it might actually be a punishment where, oh, okay, you get in trouble, and then 
where instead of being sentenced to death, you're sentenced to be a eunuch and you're castrated and sent to work at the palace. Yeah, so there was, oh, I forget the exact number, but there was, there'd be like thousands of them. Again, this is such a large, large uh, operation, the Forbidden City, that oh, I, I have the number here somewhere on Pooey's uh, page, but I want to say it was around 1,500, just off the top of my head, eunuchs that would be in, in, the, in this in city. In the movie, I don't think they say a specific number, but I think that he says there's over 1,000. Yes, okay. So yeah, we'll say, we'll say over 1,000, about 1,500-ish eunuchs in the palace in the again i say the palace again it's basically a whole city the forbidden city but it's kind of a misnomer like it's not actually a city but it's also way too large to be called just a palace so it's just again a 180 acre complex that is the palace slash the forbidden city anyway kind of a neat thing for china there so what the movie underemphasizes, although it shows a little bit of it is puyi's treatment of his eunuchs so they show him when his brother comes to visit, they show him forcing one of the eunuchs to drink ink. And it's kind of him showing off to his brother to see, like, see how much power I have. Like, they'll do anything I say. Yeah. In real life, this kid abused the heck out of that and took joy in having them whipped and beaten for any perceived slight. And he was just downright wicked to his eunuchs. And the movie just kind of shows that one little moment. Wait, hang on. So you're saying that giving unlimited, <laughs> unchecked power to a nine-year-old is a terrible idea uh yeah and of course they give him gave him that power when he was even younger than that but yes right yeah so he even says to his brother because he's getting carried and his brother asks him he's like so you can do whatever you want he says oh yeah i can do whatever i want he goes if i'm naughty one of them gets punished yes yes <laughs> so yeah they, they hint at it but they underemphasize the the sheer cruelty now at the same time the eunuchs were often corrupt not just with the ones we see within the movie here not that we really get to know any by name, but over the centuries, because they kind of had this access, it was something they were definitely not shy about exploiting. So when we see the mm-hmm. fire in the movie here, they kind of talk about a building is, is on fire and they kind of have to deal with that. And then he, and he expels a lot of the eunuchs. That really happened. And it was it seemed to be actually tied to, and I don't think the movie really goes into this, it seemed to be tied to the eunuchs were smuggling imperial relics out of the city and selling them on the black market basically so oh really the fire was kind of a distraction tactic to kind of and again i don't know the exact details but it was probably arson by the eunuchs to kind of help cover up their crimes and so getting rid of them wasn't necessarily a bad idea either at that time so even though he is expelled as emperor in 1912 after just four years of ruling and again this is both in the movie and in real life he is allowed to remain in the Forbidden City as the, oh, basically he's treated as the emperor still as far as he's concerned, but has no real power. And then within the Forbidden City, they're trying to kind of hide that fact from him. So right. even when he's 12 and has no more power anymore, he's not actually the emperor. Within the Forbidden City, they're still treating him like he's an absolute monarch. And he kind of slowly realizes the truth as he tries to, you know, I want to leave the Forbidden City. And he realizes, oh, even though they've been telling me I'm, I have 100% absolute power, I am powerless for something as simple as leaving this city. Right. That was that's actually in the uh, we we you'd mentioned it earlier, but the uh, kind of the impetus for him making that guy drink the ink is because when his his relative is it, his brother, yes, right? his little yes, brother, his, yeah, his little brother comes and and says, oh, you're not the emperor anymore. There's there's a new emperor, and he you know drives a car and. He's the new the new boss, basically. He's in charge. Yeah, he's in charge. Yeah, yeah, you're not in charge. 
so they yeah they they do uh, they do mention that in the movie but is that and i don't know if there is any way to verify this but did it actually happen so in the movie it showed everyone trying to hide it from him. was that does that take place in real life as well I, I think so, because again, he was continuing to treat the eunuchs like this after he had no real power. And so I, the timeline all kind of works out for that to be pretty accurate, I would say. And when he's a teenager in the movie, it's Peter O'Toole, who yeah. comes to be his tutor. And that is accurate. He did get a British guy who was one of the few Westerners allowed in the Forbidden City. And it, and it was this this character, this uh, Reginald uh, Fleming Johnston, who did then, when he left, write a book, which comes up in the movie as well. What I thought was interesting too is the casting of Peter O'Toole because even in the Wikipedia articles, it talks about how Puyi was blown away by the piercing blue eyes of his new tutor. And I'm like, well, of course you got to get Peter O'Toole then if you're going to have the piercing, you know, piercing white blue eyes. <laughs> and so there's some of the things we see in the movie. So this Johnston character a lot of things we see him help with in the movie as far as getting the kid glasses, getting the kid a bicycle to ride around town, shifting his education to be a little more worldly. That's all accurate. That that happened. This guy really did kind of help open some of the mental doors and break this kid out of the bubble that they had put him in, much to his detriment. So we kind of see that in the movie, and that is pretty darn accurate. Most of the movie is pretty accurate. We, we mentioned it kind of downplayed his cruelty toward the eunuchs, but it, it pretty much gets its facts straight and does simplify in a few places. But but overall, it's pretty darn solid historically. Which is crazy because if you, you know, just like we said earlier, you know, just hearing like all the places that this story goes, it sounds, oh, right. it sounds insane. It sounds completely right. made up. Right. And to think that it's so relatively recent that this guy just, I mean, let's see. Yeah. I think your parents were probably born when this guy died that yep. we're talking about. Yep. And that's, yeah, so it's very, very recent, relatively speaking. So, again, so the phases of his story, I guess I would say the next major phase is when he is actually finally booted from the Forbidden City. And all this just has to do with all the different factions. And again, we kind of saw this when we were looking at the Sand Pebbles, where basically from the ousting of the Emperor in 1912 until the People's Republic of China takes over in 1949. So during that, what, 37 years? Yeah. There's just a lot of different factions taking charge. And I think that period of Chinese history is even called, like, um, the Age of the Warlords. Yes, yes. Or, or something similar. But And they, they mention it in the movie, too. They talk about all the warlords vying for power and, you know, taking control of their own little areas. And that's exactly the uh, time that, um, that Sand Pebbles took place. Right. And because it's not really in the scope of this movie, we're not going to go into the details of all of it. It's very complicated. And there, at one point, one of those warlords tried to actually reinstate the emperor. And at another point where he's finally expelled from the Forbidden City, is again, just because another faction thought it would be in their interest to take over the Forbidden City, so he's kicked out. Then, I kind of forget exactly, but then they kind of jump, and that's where we see him in the, oh, I think it's in the late 20s, and he is kind of this playboy. So he, ha he he's a person of means, he's well-educated, and he's this former emperor of China. And we just kind of see him in Western clothes and out with his two wives and kind of just living it up. And I actually forget what city that was in when they when we see him like that. I want to say it's called like uh, Tansing or something. Okay, so he is still in China. Yes. Okay. And they're basically just, they don't consider him a threat. They just kind of say like he's just our former emperor and he's just this guy around town. 
Yes. So in the movie, when they first bring it up, they're talking to he's talking about it in 1950 in the prison. Correct. And he's talking about all the money that he spent there. Correct. Because he's talking about, you know, oh, I was finally out of the Forbidden City. I had all this money. I was buying, you know, had to rent this villa. I was buying pianos and cars and nice suits and having dancing with a band that had blackface for some reason. Oh, I missed that. Did you notice that? No, I guess I missed that. Yeah. So that scene. And I don't know why. uh, It was the 20s. That's what they did. Yeah, but in China? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, but again, they are wearing Western clothes. So there was definitely seemed to be some kind of Western cultural influence. So yeah, I mean, you just talked about no, was, Black, so the, that's about the Al Jolson time period. I'm pretty sure the band was all white guys, though. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like that's who, oh, I got you. But that's who wore blackface yeah. typically was was the white guys. So again, you think of Al Jolson? That's probably about that time in the late 20s. Yeah, I don't know, but I, that was kind of that was kind of weird. They were like they were you know they just they started doing the quick step or whatever, and then. <laughs> It pans over to the band and the piano player has blackface. And I was like, what is going on? But yes, then this would be when he's recruited by the Japanese. Right. Yeah. And they're either getting ready to take over or have taken over Manchuria. And they're wanting to set up this puppet state. And then that's where he's talking to his captors in the 50s about to what extent he was complicit in that. So he insists that he was captured and had no choice in the matter. And... Johnston's book that his captors in the 1950s have read say he willingly went because he saw it as a potential stepping stone to regain his throne for all of China, not just in this puppet state in Manchuria called like Manchuko. Right. And they also I think they use his valet or his driver, whoever or it wasn't his driver. It was his uh, one of his guys. And again, this, in 1950 in the prison, they had them write down the story of their lives, to, quote, confess their crimes. And uh, he said, you know, oh, on this date, you know, I packed all of the emperor's stuff. Oh. And that was two days before that was two days before he was supposedly kidnapped. And that was where they were like, well, this doesn't add up. Why would you have had your had your guy pack all your stuff? I'm an educated man, but I'm afraid I can't speak to the travel habits of William T. Santiago or Poon Yi. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and so and the movie kind of makes you wonder if Johnston was lying, but but no, this was this is what again happened in real life as well and within the movie. Puyi is lying. He he was complicit. Yep. He did he did embrace the Japanese ideas of reinstating him, even if he knew it was only as a puppet. And he did lie about it because he knew they might kill him if he confessed to it. So right. it's it's complicated. And and again, you, you ultimately feel for this guy. And again, as kind of cruel as he is as a kid, and the movie I think the movie downplays that so that we do empathize with him more as he gets but older. Even so, I mean, you can't I mean Yes, he did those terrible things as a kid, but also he had no guidance to speak of. Correct. He's a victim of circumstance. Right. No one is going to tell him, don't make that eunuch drink that bowl of ink yep. because he's the God Emperor. He's the son of heaven. Right. He's the Lord of 10,000 years. And just because he's six years old doesn't mean he's not in charge. Yep. And so, yeah, growing up in those circumstances, I don't want to say he gets a pass, but it's definitely understandable. Right. And the whole idea of trying to walk a mile in someone's shoes, no one can walk in this man's shoes. No one no. lived this life. You can't even possibly imagine. We talk about today, you know, what is it they call it? Uh, affluenza when, you know, these rich kids don't know any better. Right. This is yeah. that to, you know, a thousand fold extreme. I mean. Oh, right. Yeah. That actually ties into the one thing I remembered most from seeing this movie 
10, 15 years ago, and it's it's farther near the end than I realized. Of course, that's also because the movie version I watched was an hour longer than it should have been. Um, but so when one of the guards is telling him, hey, at night, you need to make sure when you get up to use the restroom that you pee to the side of the bowl of your chamber pot because if you pee directly oh. into the center, it splashes and it's louder and it wakes up your, your roommates. And I'm like... Yeah. This guy thought he was a god, and now he's being told how to urinate in a cell at night. And just that little scene and that juxtaposition or whatever, that dichotomy, really just kind of stuck with me all these years. And I, I think about that, honestly, <laughs> for the last 15 years, when I pee in a public place, I think about The Last Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> and now everyone else lives yes, in the world, yes. too. And now all the, list, well, the male <laughs> listeners now. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so then, just continuing our narrative here, so from Japan, that leads into what we saw in Ip Man with the Japanese attacks during World War II and before World War II, which again, as we mentioned during the Ip Man episode, some people consider the beginnings of World War II, because yes, right. it's pre the German aggression, but this is the Japanese aggression that continued during the war and ended only with the end of the war. So, right, and then that's where, as the war doesn't go well for the Japanese, we see... Puyi's advisors trying to tell him flee to Tokyo. Um, it'd be better to be captured by the Americans than be captured by the Russians. Right, because everyone knows Americans are the good guys and the Russians are the bad guys. That's right, even the Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, within the context of the story and, and history, they're not wrong. The idea is that the communist Russians are going to sympathize with the communist Chinese. Chinese right. Although, hang on. Well, they wouldn't have been, they, they wouldn't, they, they weren't, weren't communists yet. They hadn't, you're right. They had, the communists weren't in charge of China yet, huh? Right, but they're saying that the, that the Americans would be, you know, more. Less likely to kill you. Less likely to kill you, or, right. Or turn it, you over Russia, to the Chinese who will kill you. Right. Because the, you know, and, and especially, you know, the, the Russians as communists probably have more to say about you being an emperor. Correct. Which is ironic, though, when you think about our democratically elected president at the time versus Stalin. <laughs> yeah. Who's yeah. more of a, a thug in charge. But again, it's all, it's all just kind of figurehead stuff. And as Wikipedia notes, and the movie doesn't necessarily go into this, the fact that the Russians decapture him and not say uh, the Chinese is probably what saved his life. And that yes. the Republic of China, before the People's Republic of China, would probably have executed him as, as a symbol of an enemy of the state. And then when, yep. the, when the communists take over in 1949, the Russians agree to turn him over. And then that's where it goes to the beginning of the movie. And we see him taken to this prison in 1950. So the reason it's 1950 is because this is right after the communists have taken over China and the prisoner transfer has taken place. And then it's the communists who are interviewing him and having all these prisoners write these confessions that you mentioned, or sorry, autobiographies that they are using as confessions. And they basically, if they don't get the story they want, they make you rewrite it and start over. And again, this wasn't made up just for the movie that the guards at least ostensibly saw these prisons as schools. And we're trying to re-educate these supposed enemies of the state to join us and join the fold and be forgiven. And throughout the world, it was actually kind of then a shock when in 1959 or whenever exactly it was, they let him go. They release him. They say he's reformed. And yep. they let him just kind of go back and become a private citizen as this former emperor of China. And it's kind of remarkable that he made it. And then he only lived for another seven or sorry, eight years after that. 
and did kind of become a gardener and wasn't good at it because he had no skills but that all kind of happened and it's it's just a fascinating life story as you said yeah and right before that there's a there's that scene where they're watching the documentary about all of the japanese war crimes and stuff Mm. well it's basically they're basically watching a documentary about the pacific theater of world war ii essentially okay yeah 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 they're talking about the war crimes and i guess i might have missed something but he basically flipped from you know trying to say oh i didn't i didn't do any of this you know i was kidnapped and you know i wasn't helping the japanese to then he confessed to everything at some point even stuff yes. that he had no knowledge of or didn't oh true. didn't know about because yeah. because the the governor of the prison sees him watch that documentary when they're talking about all the japanese chemical experiments and oh. he's like horrified and he's like yeah man there's no way that you knew about this so why why did you confess to it? And he said, "Oh well, I was the emperor of Manchuko. I'm responsible for it." And 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 that seems to be accurate as well. So despite you know we talked about his his rough early life, and he did sincerely regret all of that and did feel a lot of shame for how he had acted, not just as a child, but even during World War II. It's complicated because we're saying like he's in the wrong when when the two rival factions here are the aggressor Japanese during World War II, and then the communist Chinese. So it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not like the good guys and the bad guys, as far as the United States is concerned, it's kind of the bad guys and the bad guys. (laughs) But but they were enemies of each other. And so, yeah, history's history's complicated. That's kind of why I definitely love all this stuff. Yeah. One more thing. Um, I don't know if you came across this in any of your research. So there's the, that woman that's hanging out with him and his wife. So after his... In the in the 20s, when he gets when his uh, secondary consort bails, basically, she says, I'm going to divorce you. He says, no one divorces me. So then she just leaves. And then there's that other woman and they call her something. I forget her name. It's like Eastern Jewel or something. Oh, yes. Cartoon made up name. Yes. Is that is she she, was she real? Because she's like a Japanese spy who was living with the emperor and his wife and was also kind of like in a like semi-romantic relationship with his wife it seemed they kind of were like hinting at or not so subtly hinting at actually let me pull that up real quick because i think i think she is real i do think she is real and okay because because she i mean and if uh oh here we go eastern jewel yeah yeah it looks like she was a real person whose name is yoshiko kawashima yes yes that's right so she is japanese oh chinese princess of manchu descent so she was manchurian royalty who was also a spy for the Japanese? No, and, and that's the kind of scenes what we saw in the movie. And you're right, you could almost do a whole movie on her, and she was just kind of this peripheral character, yeah. I was going to say, that's insane that like her life story is probably nuts too, and she's just like a side character in this movie, because at the beginning, she's like hanging out with the emperor and his wife, and then like towards the end, she's like actually wearing her you know Japanese uniform. Yeah, she's there when the, the Japanese guy who is then in charge of the... Emperor's compound kills himself at the end of the war. And... Oh right, and then I don't. Does the movie show her killed because she was actually uh, captured and executed in 1945? I don't think so. I I think I think they might mention it. Yeah, the last time we see her is when Puyi is leaving or is trying to leave and then gets captured by the Russians. But that's the last time we see her. It's actually it's in August 1945 because they're listening to emperor hirohito on the radio right surrendering give right? Yeah. you know say yeah say that the japan is surrendering and then that guy kills himself when they hear the radio address so that yeah that's the last time that we that they see her 
so yeah, and then basically three months later, she was executed. Oh, okay. So probably so then not wrong about about the Russians then. Correct. Because that's probably who she was. If, I mean, if she's in Manchuria. Correct. So the other interesting thing that the movie talks about, and I really didn't find this as much in the research, but they say his wife is pregnant, and it's pretty obvious they all agree that it's not the emperor's, basically because he's not sleeping with her, and he kind of just poo-poos it, and we don't really deal with it too much, I guess, after that. But So that ties into... It's kind of weird, because the movie shows him kind of frolicking with his two wives and having fun in bed, but... It's weird. So he seems to have probably been homosexual, which is part of the reason why he didn't have a child with his wife, even though the movie kind of shows both sides of that. And even the Wikipedia page does a couple times mention that he was likely gay, but doesn't dwell on it as much as you think they might. They kind of just mention it and then don't bring it back up again. Whereas I feel like other pages, they'll go into more detail about this stuff. So does it say why? Why he's gay? <laughs> Not why he's gay. Why? <laughs> Why scholars think that. It was an open secret that he was, quote, biologically incapable of producing an heir. And they said that's basically Japanese code for gay. Okay, gotcha. And then there was another reference to his homosexual tendencies. Not that, not that he ever then uh, acted upon them, maybe, though. Was it accurate then in the movie where his wife got pregnant by someone else? See, and that, the whole that, stillbirth thing and the... That, that I didn't see. I, I don't want to say it is or isn't. I, I didn't actually see that. Because the, I mean, the scene in the movie, it, you know, it seems too crazy to be true. But then again, so does the rest of the movie. Because he's <laughs> just sitting there eating dinner with his wife. And she's like, by the way, I'm pregnant. And the, uh, the father is Manchurian. And then the Japanese come in. I forget. They're, they're trying to get him to do something. Or he was supposed to sign something. He didn't sign it. And then he basically tries to flex on him and say, oh, well, I'm going to have an heir. Because the my wife is pregnant. Oh, and they're like, yeah. yeah, dude, we know, and we also know it's not yours. Gotcha. Oh, and by the way, it's your driver. Right. So it's interesting. You're right. So it's like, how would they? How would they know that? Yeah. So I, again, I'm not sure about all that stuff in in real life per se. But again, I almost feel like that's maybe the movie's way of dealing with it. Like, how did they know it wasn't his? Oh, this is the '80s. I don't know why they weren't a little more forthcoming. With unless again, this is already such a long kind of epic movie. I just think getting into a sexuality, they just kind of mostly ignored. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, they kind of we do kind of see when he, when we first see him meet his wife, we kind of see how he's disinterested, and I think the movie kind of tries to sell that as him being just super nervous. In real right. life, it sounds like that actually may have been tied into he was uninterested because he was gay. Hmm. I don't know. It is what it is. I guess we'll never know much more than that. Uh, one other note I had here was why is this movie in English? You know, so, <laughs> and we've been, we've been, at, at least it seems like, uh, it, this might be my memory playing tricks on me, but it seems like we've been watching a decent number of foreign movies, which I think was by design, right? When you were picking movies? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just to be diverse, I figure without trying, we're going to be Western focused and English focused. So whenever possible, I tried to go away from it, knowing that we'd end up right. back there more often than not. Well, I just look, I mean, so like... Just the last few movies we've done, I mean, Downfall, Letters to Me with Jima, Grave of the Fireflies, like those, you know. Oh, true. Those are all foreign. Yeah. Right. And so it's a lot of the time watching these movies, you know, if it's a foreign setting, it means it's going to be in a foreign language. And it was almost jarring, like almost took getting used to 
you know, seeing these people in the Forbidden City and then they're all speaking English. Correct. Because, yes, you could argue Gandhi has the same flaw, but at least the British were in control and English made sense even when the British weren't around. These people actually knew English. These people wouldn't have known English until the tutor kind of comes in and probably teaches them English. They basically just did like the substitution method where English was a substitute for Chinese because we hear the Japanese speaking Japanese. Right. But the Chinese speak English. Is, yeah. is, the language thing is always interesting where I feel like it seems to be a thing nowadays where it's lesser movies that don't use the actual language. But here you have a Best Picture winner and even Gladiator. Obviously, you weren't going to have it in Latin or whatever. But right. Uh, yeah, tangent here on Gladiator. So I get, say, using there, substituting English for Latin. But then he goes to Africa and they're all speaking English, too. <laughs> yeah. And again, I guess maybe that, I don't know. It, it, language is kind of an interesting thing when you're dealing with movies. And this scene one, too, when you have these Asian actors, and I'm not saying you wouldn't have any English, like when the English tutor comes in, but right. why not have it subtitled and in Chinese? I, I don't get it. And I don't, I think it's, I think it's a better movie because it just seems more authentic if you do that. But hey, but it's still one best picture. Well, right. And I think it might have been a commercial success thing where they're like, well, we can be authentic and we can do it, you know, have everyone speak Chinese, have the Chinese guys speak Chinese and have the Japanese speak Japanese. But, you know, if we're we will probably make more money selling this to American audiences if everyone speaks English. And I'm sure you're right. But at the same time, the people who go see Transformers aren't going to go see The Last Emperor. So, right. But I, yeah. I, but I, I do think you're right, though. And I think that's just like late 80s Hollywood. And that's the way they saw it. Whereas then a decade later, when you have something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that right. I'm sure exceeded yep. this at the box office and was in Chinese, that's yeah. when they, they kind of start realizing, oh, okay, at the end of the day, good movies sell tickets. <laughs> right, right. One other question I had real quick. So did Manchuko just kind of immediately go right back into the Chinese fold at the end of World War II? Uh, let's see. After the surrender of World War II, the territories claimed by Manchukuo were first seized in the Soviet invasion of Manchuria in August of 1945, which is what we talked about. Where right, they capture him. Right, the Soviet Union basically had a non-aggression agreement with Japan all the way through the war, and then in August 1945, they said, "You know what? We're invading Manchuria and taking it from the Japanese." But then they transferred it to the Chinese the next year, so in 1946. They, okay. gave, they basically like, oh, hey, you guys are probably going to be communists. We're communists. Here you go. Here's Manchuria. Okay. And again, then just a reminder, when the communists took over in 1949, that's when the previous Republic of China was, oh, exiled isn't the right word, basically kind of retreated down to Taiwan and the controversy with Taiwan that still kind of exists to this day. It kind of stems from, from that, which we've discussed yes. before. All right, that's all for this week. Next week, we'll have another biopic of sorts that'll keep us hovering right around the 1950s. This time, we'll be in Argentina with Avida starring Madonna. <laughs>